Good day. Welcome to the Corey Morgan Show. I am, of course, Corey Morgan, and this is my weekly little stage to rant, rave, interview interesting guests, and uh, cover some news stories and items. We're coming to you, as you can see in the background, out of beautiful sunny Calgary. It is getting a little dry out there. We could use a little rain, and we're broadcasting across the country through all of our regular social media channels and the Cowboy Network, RFD TV and live TV. So good to see you all out there, seeing you guys coming in on the comment scroll already. Debbie, Yasha, Paradoxy, Shirley. So for those of you who are watching this live, by all means, use that comment scroll. I love it. It's good to see the interaction going on out there. Throw questions my way, my guests' way. As I kind of always said, I, I might not necessarily read them all on the air, but uh, I do see them all there, and I appreciate them. And uh, good to see you there, too, Melissa. So, uh, yes, we've got a good packed one today. i got Spencer Fernando coming on in a little while as a guest. People are probably familiar with him. He's based out of Manitoba. He's a prolific writer. He was involved with the National Citizens Coalition and a number of things. And he's, he's put out a, a good little column uh, on... Uh, basically Canada's abuse of its own military forces. We're really asking a lot from them and not providing terribly well for them. And again, it, it just keeps undercutting and reducing the pride in, in this nation. But uh, yeah, Spencer and I will, will have a good conversation about that in about 15 minutes or so. So let's start with what's got me wound up and ranting today. There's always something. And it's on food supplies, guys, because uh, it's serious and it's something that we really need to start discussing. We've got climate-obsessed governments out there reducing world food supplies. And think about it, if you want to control a population, control its food supply, right? I mean, we're in this world where every little entitlement and desire is defined as a need or a human right, and people are protesting for it. Yet at the same time, we're quietly letting ideologically driven political leaders threaten what there is a very real right to and need for reliable, affordable food supplies. So this latest attack on food production that we're reading about comes from Ireland, where the government's proposing the slaughter of 200,000 dairy cows in an effort to reach EU climate change targets. Now, the climate impact of culling these animals is going to be negligible at best, but the impact on Irish consumers and food producers is going to be immediate and harsh. I mean, dairy products, they're infused into most European food supplies. The slaughter of these cattle is going to immediately raise prices on most food items. It's probably going to put a lot of producers out of work and not going to do a bloody thing for the environment. But climate zealots, they don't care. They're undeterred by protests or economic reality. They just want to shut down human activity by all and any means possible. You're not talking about rational, reasonable people here. Even in Sri Lanka, I mean, this is a nation that's not a stranger to hard times and famine in relatively recent memory. Well, their government imposed ridiculous regulations banning types of fertilizer and encouraging these inefficient organic growing practices. At least with them, they got stirred up enough it spawned protests that actually took down their own government. That was only a couple of years ago. But still, the push doesn't stop. In the Netherlands, the state's been at war with its own farmers since 2019, when nationwide protests were spawned by nitrogen and ammonia bans at the expense of the agricultural producers. Farm protests have been crippling their nation at times, but the government's still undeterred, and they're working towards forcing the reduction of livestock herds and taking land away from agricultural producers in the Netherlands. And hey, don't think it's just happening overseas, guys. Canada isn't far behind. The Trudeau government suggested a 30% reduction in fertilizer use by agricultural producers. I mean, if such a reduction would deeply cut into crop outputs. And the notion sparked a quick backlash from Canadian agricultural producers. The government then hastily pointed out the 30% reduction is voluntary for producers. But of course, what they're saying is, for now. I mean, these guys are nuts. They put $8.5 million 
into a cricket production facility. Crickets for human consumption. Yes, this is how mad they are. I'm not making this stuff up. Look it up. Eight and a half million of your tax dollars went to cricket production while they're attacking food production here. We're being governed by zealots. Don't expect rationality to come from Ottawa anytime soon. Justin Trudeau desperately wants to be respected on the world stage. He knows his intellect isn't going to get him there, so he's hoping his actions as a climate crusader will garner him the international adoration he wants to uh, revel in. He knows nothing of supply chains, food needs, or agricultural production. I mean, think about it. Canada is led by a man whose servants shop for him and chill his favorite cereal bowl in the mornings while he tries to pick out cute socks for the day. He's never seen a grocery bill, much less a balance sheet from a farm. But he's in the position to control our food supplies. Think about that. NGOs and environmental groups feed the agenda further. The Suzuki Foundation, oh yes, David Suzuki and his foundation with his many, many homes, just came out against domestic beekeeping. Yes, because domesticated bees, as far as they're concerned, are a form of unnatural livestock and they might pressure wild bee populations. Yeah, aside from the honey they produce, domestic bees are sort of an integral part of crop pollination for agricultural producers. Bees are actually rented by farmers for this purpose. Their crop yields will go down if they don't have these bees. Suzuki and his ilk don't care. They aren't pro-environment. That's what we got to get driven to people's heads. They are not pro-environment. They're anti-human. Big difference. They want to drop world populations, and they don't care what it takes to do it. Arguably, I guess, a reduced world population would ease environmental pressures on the planet, whether from, you know, the reduction in trash, water contamination, emissions, sure, fine. But reducing the efficiency of food production isn't going to reduce the world's population or improve the environment. It's just going to make populations desperate, hungry, and impoverished. The most environmentally friendly populations on the planet are all in the richest nations. Blue bins, emission reduction plans, comprehensive waste management, those are all luxuries developing nations lack. We take them for granted here. Having a low birth rate is also a luxury only afforded to wealthy nations. In developing nations, people need large families in order to survive and sustain a retirement. In developed nations such as ours, we need immigration to counter our low birth rates. Developing nations are also forced, of course, to use inefficient food production means such as slash and burn farming and burning high-emitting fuels from wood to coal to even animal dung to cook their food sometimes. If we want to slow or even reduce human population growth, the path is through economic development for developing nations. Make them rich enough to afford to be nice to the environment and stop breeding like we've been able to. To do that, they need reliable, plentiful energy and food supplies. And they need to be, um, become wealthy enough to cut back on breeding. In other words, they need to do the opposite of what the environmentally fanatical nations are pushing them to do. They don't need more windmills. They don't need organic farming. They need natural gas networks heating their homes and generating their power. They need modern farms along with the associated chemicals for pest control and fertilizer. In other words, they need all those things that Justin Trudeau and other vain virtue signaling world leaders are denying from them. Canada has abundant resources and not... Not only will we not expand development of them for ourselves, we're also being prevented from exporting them to those nations that need them most. The environmental movement's hit new, revolting extremes. It's working basically to starve populations into what they think is going to be a greener new world, and it won't come. The alarm bells are ringing now, guys. Are we going to act and reverse this madness and food reduction, or are we going to wait until the starvation actually sets in? And guys, it's just going to start with the developing nations. Don't think for a moment that we're immune for it, and it won't come here next. Well, that's what's got me ticked off today. I was lucky enough to have a nice big meal at least to set it off. But seriously, guys, it's insane. It's insane. Of all things to go after our food. All right, let's talk to somebody who's more sane. And that's our news editor, Dave Naylor, coming from the newsroom there. How's it going, Dave? 
good. I wouldn't say I'm any more sane than you, Corey. Not a not a bit. But uh, I was thinking of you when we published that uh, that B story about Suzuki on uh, on uh, Saturday. I pictured you in your beekeeping outfit and your head exploding. Pretty close. Be- the vein was pulsing there, and, and my bees were not happy when I passed it along to them. No, uh, utterly, utterly ridiculous. Uh, yeah, extremely busy morning already, uh, Corey, uh, on the Western Standard. Right now we're leading off with a, what could be a, actually a fun political event. Pierre Polyev has vowed that as of uh, 5 p.m. tonight, he's going to rise in the House of Commons and speak. And he is going to speak and filibuster until Justin Trudeau caves on his latest budget. So you know how uh, Justin does not like to admit he's wrong. And, uh, you know, Polyev's got a bit of a stubborn streak uh, in him anyway. So he could be talking for days. I hope he brings some snacks and, uh, uh, you know, I hope he gets a bathroom break or two. But uh, that's going to be very, very interesting. Uh, Other stories we're working on at the moment are already posted, actually, a... uh, uh, school in California, their school board was uh, talking about introducing uh, sexual minority rights into the curriculum. And some parents weren't happy about that. Some parents were, and they protested outside, and it ended up in uh, fisticuffs, a mass brawl with uh, California cops uh, having to come in and uh, make the poli- make uh, the peace. Uh, we've got a follow-up on that story out of Innisfail earlier this week, Corey, where a uh, a Red Deer lawyer was charged with attacking a RCMP officer and uttering threats. Uh, this came after a Innisfail RCMP uh, unit pulled over a, uh, a truck with two women in it, and it ended up also being a mass brawl with the Red Deer lawyer allegedly, or has been charged with allegedly attacking the uh, the officer. The uh, lawyer's brother, who's also a lawyer, put out a statement saying the entire blame was on the uh, RCMP for overreacting and uh, they were racist because uh, uh, the female lawyer was indigenous. Well, now the National Police Federation has uh, lambasted uh, uh, the the two lawyers uh, saying they should know better than to publicly try and shame a uh, police officer and there are ways to uh, uh, take their, uh, their anger out going through uh, the proper channels. Uh, what else is worth mentioning? We've got a premier's poll by Angus Reid. Uh, Scott Moe continues to be the most popular premier in Canada. Uh, Stephenson in Manitoba is the worst. Tucker Carlson's back on Twitter with his first show. Uh, we've got dramatic video out of uh, St. Louis where a gunman uh, on foot opened up or started firing at police. So they did the right thing and they ran him down. And... Uh, it's kind of fun to see a bad guy flying through the air like that. And uh, Bank of Canada, interest rates up a quarter percent today. And the head of CNN, uh, Mr. Licht, has been fired because he hasn't been doing uh, so well uh, uh, so well on that channel. Uh, coming up shortly, we've got a story about an Ontario school board who was uh, holding a summer camp. Uh, you know, what's newsworthy about that, you're asking, Corey? Well, it's only open to black children. So it's a sort of a reverse segregation camp. So, and there's uh, some outrage coming out of Ontario on that. So, uh, lots of uh, stuff to read already, and lots more to come, Corey. Right on, Dave. Well, it's good to see there's still lots to keep you busy after that hellishly long provincial election wrapped up. I was hoping for a bit of a slowdown in the news, but uh, no such luck. Yeah, maybe once July hits.
All right. Thanks, Dave. I'll let you get back to all those stories. I know the reporters have all been giving you a good time today. They have. They have. i got to crack the whip. All right, Dave. Thanks. Thanks. That is our news editor, Dave Naylor. And it's that time before I get on to things, just to remind everybody the reason we have all those stories going up. And loads of them. Loads of them. Look at conventional newspapers these days. They're, they're practically brochures. They don't have stories anymore. They don't have reporters on the ground. They can't afford to. They're too busy lobbying, asking the government rather than writing stories. The reason for that is because you guys subscribe, guys. Check it out, westernstandard.news slash membership, $9.99 a year. 99 or no, $99 a year, $9.99 a month, and uh, you get full access past the paywall and it helps support all of us so we can keep proudly saying, hey, we don't take any tax dollars, we won't take any tax dollars, and we're accountable to you guys with what we write. So let's see. Yeah, you know, some, some stuff out of the comments. I see Waldro saying uh, started a vegetable garden this year. Yeah, you know, some people, we're going to see this with the food things, right? More people doing home production when we, we can't trust the government to allow uh, large-scale food production. Pretty scary times. Uh, myself, I'm a terrible gardener. I try. I've tried year after year. I can grow nothing but weeds. It's just once in a while I grow zucchini. That's one thing I found, but I don't like zucchini that much, you know, and it goes slowly, slowly, slowly. You think, oh, this is coming along. And then all of a sudden you got like 50 pounds of friggin' zucchini you got to try and eat. And uh, yeah, I go through a bit of it and then move on. But still, you know, getting serious with things, this this, this trend of, of going after our, our food production abilities is, is really distressing, uh, especially when we're looking at hard times and inflation. As Dave mentioned too now, so uh, the... the the economy, I guess, didn't slow as much as a lot of uh, economists and people predicting thought it would. So what did the bank do? They jumped in and said, well, good, we've got room. We're going to raise the interest rates a little more again. So yet again, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's been over 4% in interest rate hikes in the last uh, year and some now as they're trying to keep the inflation in check. Uh, yeah, you know, that's a balancing act because you see if they crank the interest rates too high, you'll slow inflation, but it's because you'll drive us into recession. So we shouldn't celebrate those interest rate hikes. Uh, you know, if we want to battle recession, we should be trying to become more productive, become more economically stable. And as I said earlier, you know, one of the things you want to reduce the costs of, of staples and things like that for consumers for food. Well, stop pressuring food producers. Stop trying to shut them down. Stop messing with the agricultural community. That's where it comes from. And it'll have far more effect on bringing food to your table in an affordable way than any amount of interest rate hikes trying to fight inflation will. And one more thing before I get to my guest, get rid of supply management for crying out loud. That's one conservative thing the conservatives even don't have the courage to jump into, but they really have to. All right, I see Spencer on deck there, and I've been looking forward to talking to him. We haven't had him on for a while, and uh, it's great to have him on. He's been writing a lot of stuff and, and covering some uh, some federal issues for us. So uh, let's bring in Spencer Fernando and discuss things. Hey, Spencer, how are you doing? Not too bad. Yourself? Oh, very good. You know, ranting, raving, but that actually makes me happy. People think I'm angry all the time, but I'm actually in my best state while I'm frothing like this. Yeah, it's good to get the negativity out somehow. Well, that's right. You know, Jane doesn't have to deal with it as much out of me then. Uh, Smart yeah. move. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I'm always reading your stories. And then just mm -hmm. to remind everybody at SpencerFernando.com, there's lots of them you're, you're putting out all the time. But just one that caught my eye, it, it, it kind of coupled um, a bit with a column I did in, in a sense of what the, you know, the almost apologetic uh, statement from the government on the RCMP's 150th anniversary. And you talking, pointing out how the lack of equipment for Canadian troops, it signifies a deeper decline for Canada as a nation. Like this is symbolizing much more than just the immediate problem that we're, that we're leaving our troops in the lurch. 
Yeah, you know, I mean, if you, you know, tell a whole generation of people that Canada's history is, you know, nothing but evil and colonialism and, you know, terrible mistreating people and, you know, all our values are bad and we should feel guilty and sad about everything, you know, then you know, you're at the same time you're saying, oh, well, you know, sign up, join the military and, you know, go overseas to, you know, defend our national interest. Well, how can you really have national interest if you're, if you take such a negative view of the nation and the history of the country? And so I, I do see those things as linked. You know, you have a government that manages. I mean, I think we just saw that they, they just asked for the authority to spend 20 billion extra dollars this year over what they'd already budgeted, which itself was a massive increase over the previous year. So they they spend money on everything. I mean, massive deficits, you know, the debt's gone up dramatically. The only place where it seems they don't spend much money is equipping our soldiers. I mean, they sent people over, I think it was to Latvia and, you know, they're having to buy their own helmets. I mean, so, you know, it's, it's, well, I'm sure we'll get to the moral aspect of, you know, sending people to harm's way without equipping them and how bad that is. But I, I do think we are seeing a deeper problem with just the fact that we've, you know, demonized our history. We've, we've made people think Canada's, you know, based on bad values. You know, Western civilization is, it's no better than any other civilization. You know, it's terrible. It's, it's got all these problems. And so when you kind of depress a country like that and depress a whole generation about their past and their history, then, you know, how do you expect people to, to join the military? And how do you expect to have a government that sees the value of the military or have citizens that see the value of the military? Because, you know, it, it's not just, it's easy to blame the politicians, but, you know, most Canadians don't vote on whether the military is, uh, you know, effective or not. And, and most people don't seem to care that much. So I think it's a serious problem, especially in a world that's becoming a lot more dangerous. Well, that's it. I mean, the military is a calling. I mean, it's not a route to easy money. It, it, mm-hmm. It's not uh, a good time. It's it's dangerous sometimes and, and difficult uh, career path to take. The, the people who join typically are feeling that they're going to do a service for the nation they love. And that's what would help them, I guess, overlook shortcomings they're getting back from the military, such as perhaps not being as well equipped or, or uh, you know, uh, whatnot as, as they should be. But if they're at the same time being told they should be ashamed of the nation and being under-equipped, this is a terrible formula for these people serving right now. Yeah. And, you know, it's, you know, one of the ironies was some of the soldiers, uh, the other NATO troops that were over there, I think from the Netherlands had better equipment than the Canadians. And much of the equipment was actually Canadian. You know, they've been buying Canadian equipment for some time. So we make good equipment. We just don't buy it for our own soldiers and we don't equip them. And so, and then there's, of course, the aspect of, you know, Justin Trudeau postures as a, you know, big defender of NATO and the rules-based international order. He talks about all the time. But, you know, it's, it's just words if you don't back it up, right? So he says all the, all the nice words about, you know, supporting NATO and freedom and democracy and all that stuff. But uh, you send people overseas, you know, into the idea is that if there's a big war, they're going to be involved in it. That's the reason we're sending people over there is a deterrent. But obviously, they'd be on the front line if a massive war broke out. So how can you justify sending them over there if you're not equipping them well? Right? You're basically saying, yeah, well, we just hope nothing bad happens because if it does, you'll be under-equipped and your chances of dying will go up. So again, you know, I, I don't see how, you know, you know, it's it's sad that Canadians are not out more outraged about this because we're sending people to harm's way without equipping them. Uh, we're spending massive amounts of money every year, but somehow not, you know, prioritizing our national defense. So, you know, I see, you know, all these people who posture as, you know, they're supporters of NATO and the, you know, oppose Russia. That's fine. But, you know, it, we live in the real world. And that means if you want to really oppose Russia and stand up for NATO, then you need to equip our military. We need to have a credible military force. We need to be able to, if necessary, fight and succeed in a major war. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of talk in this country about what our values are, supposedly. But we undermine those values both by, of course, demonizing our history 
and then we undermine those values by not living up to our military commitments or our commitments to our allies. So, you know, it's, I, don't, I don't know why people would really take our country seriously at this point. And this has been going on actually for a long, long time. I, I mm -hmm. remember a um, during one of the Gulf Wars, for one, we had to take a gun out of surplus because uh, they didn't actually have a gun for their boat to, to serve in the Gulf. And a, and a bunch of our soldiers went overseas and they showed up in the desert and they had olive green uniforms. Mm -hmm. And of course, they stood out like sore thumbs. They didn't have desert camouflage. There's different types. Yeah. They're not in the jungle. So other soldiers lent them ponchos to cover their olive green uniforms. This was decades ago. And how humiliating that must have been for them, you know, when you're serving overseas in these other countries that they're lending you these things out of them, a sense of goodwill and, and to keep you safe, of course. But if this hasn't been solved after decades of underfunding the, the military, do you think we ever will turn it around? As you said, Canadians don't seem to get upset enough about this. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm doing the best I can to try to wake more people up about it, but it, it's certainly a tough task. And, you know, one of the, the strange things about it is, if you look at the country that Canada most um, resembles, you know, militarily in terms of our attitude towards the military and underfunding, ironically, it's Germany, right? I mean, Germany has the same thing. I mean, they promised recently they were going to boost their military funding and that turned out to be mostly hot air. They haven't really done that much. But it, it's so odd because Germany, you can understand why they'd be a little reticent to build up their military again, right? I mean, they've got a history where certainly the idea of saying, you know, we're pretty ashamed of what we did in the past. That makes a lot of sense for Germany. Canada, of course, is fighting on the opposite side of that. So we have a lot to be proud of militarily, but we seem to have the same kind of you know, almost ashamed attitude of all the military. Oh, we don't want to really talk about it. We don't want to be military. We don't want to be too strong. It's too too scary and too mean. And so, you know, I, I don't know if it will change. It, it's an attitude that obviously comes, I think, from, you know, very deep with a lot of Canadians. You know, I see people say, oh, we don't need a military or America will protect us or, you know, oh, who needs a big military in today's day and age? And, Again, you know, a big military is something that certainly looks like a waste of money most of the time, but when you need it, you know, it better be there because you can't just build it up instantly, right? And so, you know, I, I think all the people who who claim that they, you know, support NATO and claim that Canada, you know, should be a part of defending, um, you know, our values against, you know, countries like Russia, against countries like China, that's only credible if you support building up the military. There's no magical, you know, way around that. You know, you have to have a strong military to be able to defend yourself and help your allies. So, uh, you know, I think maybe it's because Canada hasn't had any, you know, internal military conflicts for a long time. You know, we didn't fight a major war of independence. That's not how we became a nation. So maybe people just don't appreciate it. But, you know, I think it's it's something that we, we don't want to overlook because it's, you know, you don't want to be in a situation where you're desperately trying to build up a military when your country is being attacked. Well, it sounds like we need a national discussion to find out, well, what do we want then as a military? What do we want to be as a role around the world, a, a peacekeeper or an emergency, just that they're going to show up to help in emergencies, or are they going to be a part of NATO? I mean, NATO means you should be pretty militarized because that, that's some, some pretty hot areas that you might need to defend yourself. I, I would think it doesn't have to be a large military, but we could at least equip them better. I, I, the current military is using, they're using sidearms from World War II. I remember a, a series of, of uh, columns on that in the National Post They've been spending decades navel-gazing and talking about getting new sidearms. You could go to Cabela's with a couple million dollars and get them updated sidearms in a week if you really wanted to, and they still can't even manage to get this done. Uh, I mean, it seems almost if it's that bad that it's purposeful that they're, maybe they're trying to starve this military out of existence. Yeah, there certainly does seem to be part of that, uh, in that attitude at play here. You know, and as you say, yeah, it doesn't need to be a massive military. We're not a big country in terms of population, but certainly we could have a very advanced air force. You know, we could be a leader in drone technology, missile technology, and then have a small but very well equipped, you know, military. And 
you know, even even in terms of cost, I mean, it's not really that expensive. I mean, NATO's asking us to spend 2% of GDP on our military. That's not really excessive. I mean, you look at a lot of other countries, they're spending 4 5 6%, way more militaries. Even the U.S. I mean, everyone talks about the U.S. supposedly being some big, you know, you know, imperial military power. They spend, you know, about average, you know, as the world goes on their military per capita um, or as a percentage of their, their GDP. They just have a huge GDP, so it looks like big spending. So we don't need to be, you know, it's not like we're going to be a super militarized country. It's just it's just basically doing the bare minimum, basically saying, look, we're going to have advanced equipment. We're going to have good planes. We're going to have a few good ships. We're going to have soldiers who are well-trained and well-equipped. And if we need to help our allies, then we can do so. And so that's that really shouldn't be too much to ask. I mean, the flip side is you look at it from the American perspective. By not funding our own military and then by saying, oh, America will protect us, we're basically saying, oh, Americans will die to protect Canadians because we're not choosing to do our part. And an alliance has to go both ways. You know, if we expect the Americans to help us if we're in trouble, we should be able to at least do a little bit to help them if they get in trouble. And so I think just, you know, strategically, morally, ethically, uh, you know, having a decent military uh, is, is certainly not something we can overlook in today's world. Yeah, I mean, taking our southern neighbors' uh, goodwill for granted uh, for the sake of our own defense is, is a pretty mm-hmm. weak way to go about things. Maybe I'll, p- I'll pivot a bit for our last few minutes because you've put another piece out since uh, just to talk about it. And it's more about, again, Canada as a whole. It kind of ties into the last one. You talk about uh, you know diversity and, and uh, how the Liberals love to talk up a good game of diversity, but they don't really seem to support diversity when, when push comes to shove in a lot of ways, or at least not when it comes to viewpoints. Yeah, I mean, there's a situation where I think a teacher was, uh, you know, admonishing a, a Muslim student for not wanting to attend a pride event. And, you know, that's gone viral and a lot of people are talking about that. And, and I think it just goes to show that, um, you know, Canada, this is the problem with not saying, you know, Trudeau said, oh, there's no core Canadian identity. You know, Canada has no, you know, set values. But then at the same time, bring in a lot of people, many of whom come from parts of the world with very different values than, than Canada, you know, not based on individual rights or, you know, freedom of religion. And then you have, you know, the the far left pushing, you know, a certain set of values on other people. And so, you know, that's the problem with not ever discussing these things as a country and just hoping that a few nice slogans like diversity and strength will make it all work together. And now, personally, I think the solution is decentralization. You know, I think we, we need the technology, as I write in the article, the technology to decentralize education certainly exists. It's just politicians and, you know, entrenched interests who stand in the way of that, you know, if parents want their kids to go to pride events, certainly they should be free to do so. You know, we shouldn't be allowing, you know, discrimination in schools. We shouldn't be, you know, teaching people, you know, to hate any group. At the same time, if parents for religious reasons want their kids to opt out or they want to send them to a religious school, we should make that easier for people as well. I think the only way for a country like Canada that's, you know, diverse in terms of, you know, ethnic backgrounds, you know, cultures, uh, religious beliefs, the only way for that really to work is to be decentralized because if one group tries to impose all of their values on another, it's just going to become, you know, tribal division and anger. And I think that's, unfortunately, it seems to be where we're heading. And I don't think that's where we want to go because that doesn't really end well. No, and it takes some delicacy. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. if you're going to try and force everybody to be under the same viewpoint, well, you better come up with the, the chart then that we're supposed to comply by. And that doesn't uh, jive with anybody thinking that they live in a free nation whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So I mean, these contradictions going on, I, I have to admit, it puts a... Uh, it puts them between a bit of a rock and a hard place when they're dealing with LGBTQ rights and dealing with minority uh, Islamic rights at the same time. Maybe that'll force a little self-examination on some of these things, though. Yeah, I think, I think you know, that's a good point. Self-examination does need to happen because I see, you know, some concerning trends, uh, both on the left and, to be honest, on the right to an extent. 
Uh, you know, the left obviously has gone so far. It's it's like you become so tolerant that you're intolerant of everybody, right? You know, the, only a very small set of beliefs are considered acceptable. And any, any little deviation from that is considered, you know, hate, right? So the left has become quite intolerant. But then I see some people on the right who, you know, you see them idolizing Russia, you know, praising, you know, you know, Uganda. I've even seen some people on the right praising Uganda with their horrific law. And so it's like you have people who are there. Oh, they don't like that. They're seeing, you know, some, uh, you know, drag events. So they decide to completely turn against Western civilization itself and, and start praising, you know, foreign dictatorships. And so I think people just need to get a grip and realize, you know, this is what living in a democracy is about. Sometimes you're out of power and your opponents do crazy things but you speak out against them and then you try to get elected and you try to persuade people to change. I mean, you look at the United States, you have a lot of states who are passing laws uh, restricting, you know, I guess what they'd say, you know, drag events or certain events. You look at, um, I think Norway just banned um, uh, sex change surgery for children. And so, and then some people will like that. Some people won't like that, but democracies are trying to figure these issues out and there's a back and forth debate. So I think both the left and the right need to, you know, restore some of their faith in the idea of freedom and the idea of democracy, the idea of debate. We experiment different ideas. One jurisdiction tries one thing, one tries another. We see how it works and, you know, we fight it out politically. But uh, the idea that we should turn to, you know, being a dictatorship or, you know, being communist or something because we're a little dissatisfied with Western democracy, I think that would be a massive mistake. Uh, some debate and live and let live concepts. They sound like mm -hmm. simple ones, but not enough people uh, seem to recognize them sometimes. Well, we'll we'll keep debating anyways and keep pushing and, and shoving and trying to keep uh, a balance in the nation, I would hope. I appreciate your, your, your contributions and your uh, columns going out there. Um, just to kind of remind everybody one more time before I let you go, where, where can we find where you're writing and uh, where your, your presence is out there, uh, Spencer? Yeah, you can go to spencerfernando.com. That's where most of my articles are. And then I publish uh, one... A column about once a week for the National Citizens Coalition. So you can find that on nationalcitizens.ca. Great. Well, I appreciate you joining the, the show again, Spencer. It's always a good conversation. I, I hope we get to talk again soon. Sounds good. Great. Thanks. Well, that was Spencer Fernando. And yes, and you can watch from as well on Twitter. He's on there. And it's, you know, Twitter's a good spot. Like I said, people say you get too worked up about the d discourse and debates on Twitter, but it's a good spot to see stories and items when they first come out. So give Spencer a follow on there and then you'll see those columns as they pop up along with the, the Citizens Coalition and, and things like that. So, you know, yeah, I, I want to pivot a little to, you know, this is some of the areas where people get worked up. So, somebody threw it at me because I, I got... Um, on Twitter, I, I put it out there when people are talking about banning Fox News, for example. Hey, well, we got to ban them. We want a CRTC to step in and ban them. They said, no, get over it. Don't watch it. Just change the channel. Why is it always banning? Why is it always shutting down? Why have I, people jump straight to, to, to attacking the other viewpoint, not allowing the other viewpoint? But somebody tweeted back at me say, so fine. So you'd be okay with uh, LGBT people in schools and, and uh, you know, drag shows and libraries and Yes, actually. Yes, I don't care. Now, the thing is, what we have to have is choice. We have to have choice. In a library, for example, as we mentioned before, join the library board if you're really that concerned and don't have trans shows going on there. Likewise with the school, we need charter schools. We need to let parents choose where their kids are going to go and where they aren't. And we need to reframe the discussion and take it back from the trans activists, not trans people. Trans activists. And you know, the trans activists are usually the same hysteric jerks 
that are the activists that get involved in all the woke causes. Usually some uh, basement-dwelling uh, white middle-class person who feels that they want to get a chip on their shoulder and make the world a better place by speaking up as a white knight on behalf of some minority or another minority that they aren't even actually a part of. Trans people have been around for a long, long time. And uh, they, they've been achieving a lot more rights, and they should, I think, you know, if they want to live their lives... But the activists got involved. The activists got into the mix. The activists moved the goalposts. They're there to outrage. They're not there to make things better for anybody else. They just have to push it farther and farther and farther. They found the line that's ticking off just about everybody. They finally found it, and it's a straightforward line for most people. Kids, why are they always so obsessed in getting in front of kids? Why? And no, by the way, because some people imply that, they're saying that, well, it's because all those trans performers and drag story hour readers are pedophiles. No, no, they aren't. Not all of them. Not most of them. Hopefully not any of them. But it is odd with that hang-up on getting in front of kids. you got the age of majority that hits at 18. That means the majority, guys, guys, gals, whatever, you can perform and do your things in front of millions and millions of people who are older than the age of 18. There's nothing stopping you. It's perfectly legal. It's perfectly allowed. Go for it. But instead, they got to keep pushing it. I mean, that's a story that just got kind of, I got to admit, and I'm not easily shocked, but got me the other day when I saw that, was trans woman's testicle falls out in front of children during performance. Yes. Because again, the, this goes beyond. There's, there's, there's more than one thing here with the, the, the trans performances. Now, there's drag time story hour. In that case, somebody's kind of dragged up, dolled up, and reading to some kids, usually pretty benign and harmless. But then that limit keeps getting pushed and we see the videos and it's not everywhere. We see enough. We see the ones where there's kids going up and putting money into the G-strings of trans performers. You know, it would be illegal if these were straight people up there. Just leave the kids alone. Leave the kids out of it. Why? Why do we have to keep pushing? And I think personally, I can't speak for them, but I think it's probably making it harder on the genuinely trans people who just want to live their lives. Just leave the kids out of it move on. But it's the rage. It's the rage. They got to push. They got to push. You know, I, I listened to something the other day. I, I listened to Adam Carolla's podcast a lot. And uh, he, he said something interesting, or he had a guest who said something interesting. He said, a lot of libertarian-minded people tend to be on the uh, autism spectrum because they, they have additional different way of uh, emotions in the way they work with things. And I don't know if that's fair or not to say if that's the case or whatnot. But uh, yes, I do think, though, and, and one of the ways he put it was good, wasn't that because we get accused of that? You get accused of these sensitive issues. You're heartless. You want this. You want that. No, not. No, not. But a libertarian person won't look at an emotional argument as being valid when it comes to policy. So, yes, I, emotions are important, but I honestly don't care what you feel. I don't. It's your problem. I want to see results. It doesn't matter what makes you feel good, it matters what works. Doesn't mean I don't have emotions. Just means I'm not going to let the emotions set the policy. Some of these uh, items they love using rent control. I always oppose rent control. I say, why? Why do you do you want people on the streets? Stupid question, but that's the kind of question these emotional jerks send at you, isn't it? Do you want people to be homeless? Do you not feel that people should be able to live comfortably under a roof? Stupid questions. Turning the discussion all based on emotion. Why do I oppose rent control? Not because I'm a heartless jerk. It's because it doesn't work. It never works. Not 
usually doesn't work, not uh, only sometimes works, rent control never works. So the only way a person could potentially push rent control is on an emotional basis. And I reject that premise. You're just wasting time. You are not helping people. Don't you want to deal with the housing crisis? Sure. Not through rent control. It'll make it worse. But that'll be the people without houses. No, won't you clowns? What else? Minimum wage hikes. You oppose minimum wage hike? You want everybody working for slave wages? No. Don't ask the stupid questions. But minimum wages don't make people richer, guys. It doesn't work that way. What does a business do when it's forced to raise minimum wages? They raise their prices. When prices raise on everything everywhere, what happens? Inflation. Then the person you just went through that whole rigmarole with, not to mention jobs get shed because other businesses will also lay people off or modernize or do some other things to get rid of the jobs to save money when the minimum wage gets risen. It doesn't work. It doesn't make those low-income people any richer. If it did work, and some people say it's a shallow argument being thrown back, then let's just raise it to $80 an hour for everybody and we'll eliminate poverty. Well, the reason we don't do that is because it's economically unviable and it doesn't work. So no, I'm not saying I want to see people live in poverty when I oppose constant minimum wage hikes. I'm saying it doesn't friggin' work. Socialized medicine, there's another beauty, isn't it? Canada's sacred healthcare system. You want people to pay for their healthcare with a credit card. You see, again, they throw a question at you. When did anybody say that? Either way, yeah, you know what? I want people to have the option to pay with a credit card. In fact, they do already. It's just that they cross the border to do it. So if they're going to be stuck in a waiting list in Canada to get care that they need desperately, if they have the means, they will go somewhere else. Maybe to get treatment from Canadian trained health professionals, but they'll do it in the United States or Vietnam or all sorts of places where medical tourism is getting bigger and bigger. So you know what? Yeah, if we can have some pay for profit, profit's not evil, guys. It's not evil. I loathe it. You know, I can always tell an extremist when they spit out the word profit as if it's a bad thing. <laughs> profit. The pursuit of profit brought us to this comfort level in this wonderful world we're living in today's guys. Socialism didn't do it. God, the Soviets couldn't even invent a bloody decent alarm clock. Go find an old ladder. See how well that works for you. A profit-driven automakers, then they do get subsidized too much, but they bring about the innovation with things. So the socialized medicine, bring some profit into it. I don't care. I don't care if the guy down the street gets in for his diagnostics a week earlier than me because he paid out of pocket, as long as all of us get in a little faster because he paid out of pocket, set aside the envy, because that's what it's all about. It's envy. It's not policy-wise. You can't stomach the thought that that person who has more means got better medical treatment than you. Well, get over it. You want us all to be equally miserable? Because we aren't. They'll still leave. And people going for medical treatments aren't always rich. They're usually desperate. I've said that before on this show, things like that. What if you got a diagnosis? Yeah, you need this heart surgery in uh, you know six weeks, or there's probably an 80% chance you'll be dead. We'll schedule you in for three months from now. That's pretty close to how Canada's system is getting with some of these treatments. What are you going to do? Well, you're going to wait around and die. You'll refinance your house. You'll borrow from friends and family. You'll sell everything you got, and you'll go across the border somewhere where you can get that treatment faster. So let's face that reality and allow these treatment options to come here, set aside the bloody envy, because all of us will get in faster. It's just that you'll have to accept that, yes, Larry over there is going to get in faster than you. 
because he has more money than you. So what? Get over it. There's a lot of people that have a lot more things than you and things better than you. That's life. Speaking of emotion, you want to know a really useless and stupid one? It's envy. So, yes, Larry gets faster health care. Larry has a bigger house. Larry has a bigger income. Larry drives a nicer car. Larry stoops better looking woman. Get over it. Larry's also paying a whole whack of taxes that helps support the social supports that are bringing you up. If you really want to get what Larry has, work hard or put your nose to the grindstone and try and do better for yourself then. Don't try to drag everyone down with it. But again, it's emotion. Emotion. I'm not saying not have emotions. I'm just saying don't let them control policy formulation. Another one's First Nations. That's a big one, isn't it? Oh, Wow. The only solution to any First Nations program, problem, apparently in Canada, it's the same as the healthcare one, is to throw more money at it. And any other solution to the challenges going on is going to get you the same responses from people. You want them to keep living in misery? You feel that the First Nations shouldn't be compensated for what happened 150 years ago? Quit throwing stupid questions at me. I want to see policies that work. Right now, the First Nations policies are failing catastrophically on every level. Go on to a native reserve. Check it out sometime. I spent a lot of time on them when I was in the oil field, constantly working with people from those reserves. And most of them are social, socioeconomic nightmares. They're dystopias. There's wild dogs running around. There's houses falling apart. The water, if it's drinkable, it's hard to come across but it's not for lack of money. So let's quit pretending it's for lack of money. We spend an inordinate amount on First Nations above and beyond what's spent on everybody else. And I'm not saying cut the spending. I'm saying what we've got to do is start looking at what will actually bring a positive outcome rather than what makes you feel better. Because I don't care how you feel. I want to see outcomes. And the outcomes right now are crap. They, they, by every measure, they're failing. How can we keep allowing the status quo to keep going when you check every measure? And it's all online. It's, it's easy to check out. Health, failing. Life expectancies, low. Poverty, rampant. Addiction, as Wildrose said, massive. Education levels, low. Crime, through the roof. Victims and perpetrators. How can you look at all that crap and say, Let's keep doing what we've been doing. We just need to throw a little more money in. It doesn't work. And the ones who are losing out of this, it's not the, well, yeah, the taxpayers are losing, but the bigger losers are the people stuck on, and oh, here comes the person who's going to take that one out of context. You called them all losers. No, they're losing the people living on the First Nations communities. Oh, until we set aside emotions and start saying, let's look at policies that work rather than policies that make me feel a little better about myself we're not going to get better policy. Likewise, with a lot of our climate policies, a lot of our, uh, you know, recycling, uh, things like that. I mean, I'll, I'll give an analogy that's a little less charged than the First Nations one. Another one that, again, simplistic, emotional, feel-good policy thinking. It's really stupid. In Calgary, for a long, long time, we've had the sorted bins. You sort your recycling stuff. People take their time and they rinse their jars and their bottles and they separate them and they put them in these green bins. And oh boy, they're saving the world, aren't they? Sweethearts. Well, then they go to a sorting center where we pay a bunch of union people a whole lot of money to clean them all again and separate it all again. And they took out all the jars and bottles in Calgary and they cleaned them. Then they crushed them into a powder because there's not you can't just refill them, reuse them. Actually, you crush them. And then they took all this powder and they put it at the Calgary garbage dump because they had nowhere else to put it. 
So there was this mountain was building because the problem was nobody wanted it. There's nothing you can do with it. It's powderized glass. It's good for next to nothing. And this mountain got bigger and bigger and bigger at the Calgary garbage dump. And finally, some luminary said, I got an idea for this stuff. I've got it. I've had a brainstorm at the dump. We're always building roads and, and trails to get around for the equipment and machinery. We're putting gravel down for those roads. Why don't we take the powdered glass and use that for roadbed? Brilliant, brilliant. So after all this much time, after all this millions spent, this big mountain, what you've decided to do was bury it at a landfill. Good thinking. At a higher cost than gravel by a long shot. Come on, you guys. If we'd just thrown the damn jars in the garbage in the first place, we would have saved millions. They still would have got buried at the landfill. We could have used gravel, but no, that doesn't feel as good. I don't feel right throwing away glass like that. And we better get better at it because we're banning all our plastics. I just want to see policies about things that work. And, you know, we don't get nearly enough of those. Uh, let's see. I'll close with a few more things that we'll be watching. So, you know, this doesn't feel so good. We're talking about emotional because I don't know what it takes to change things in this country. I mean, they voted 174 to 150 to uh, fire this special rapporteur, you know, the, the fake position that Justin Trudeau uh, created for his surrogate uncle Johnston to look into the Chinese interference issue in Canada, even with a clear majority of our elected officials in the House of Commons, they cannot get this done. We cannot fire a man who is clearly inept and biased in the job he's in. Then what on earth is the purpose of that federal legislature? Really? Talk about useless, talk about an affront to democracy, talk about a waste of time. Now, Jagmeet Singh could do something about it, but, uh, you know, I spoke about a testicles earlier. Uh, yes, the, the drag performers have more testicles uh, to be seen than Jagmeet Singh does when it comes to holding the government that he's propping up to account. He talks big, but acts small. But, I mean, yes, as, as we see that headline, his testimony showed missing information election investigation. The investigation was half-assed. It was a joke. It was just him going through the motions they're kicking the can down the road and they're hoping Canadians forget about this whole thing. They might be right. They might even be right. But he's doddering around, 81 years old. And he's even in, in discussions, Jane brought up the other day, he doesn't even sound like he's necessarily all in his right mind. I mean, this guy might be getting a little, uh, you know, cognitive challenges going on here. So similar to uh, with Mr. Biden down south of the border, we're getting into the realm of elder abuse by, by sticking these folks up here into these positions and letting them take the heat, uh, particularly when this guy's taking the heat on behalf of Justin Trudeau and his incompetent government. And uh, yeah, you know, more news came out. It's it, it, evidence of uh, them meddling in elections and uh, stuff coming up. What's it going to take? What is it going to take? All right. That's what it takes out of me. That's my ranting and raving for today, guys. Lots to cover. There's lots more stories going on. Let's hope. I, I'm not a praying type, but for those of you who pray, by all means, go for it. But let's hope there's some rain gets to those parts of the country where it's burning pretty bad. I mean, we got some serious issues going on. Alberta seems to have uh, gotten things under control, but it's getting pretty hairy out east. And, uh, well, let's just... Uh, Keep supporting our independent media guys acting well. Again, follow policies based on what works. Don't worry about your emotions. Save your emotions for your significant others. They appreciate them much better. And I will see you all again next week at this time, guys. Thanks. Here's an update on commodity prices in Lethbridge for today. Cash barley is unchanged at 412. Feed wheat is steady at 412. And corn is down $2 at 404 per metric ton.
In the middle wheat markets, July Minneapolis futures dropped 16 and 3 quarter cents to 7.99 and 3 quarters, with local harder at spring bid for June movement at 10.50 per bushel. Looking at canola, nearby futures are up 50 cents at 6.70.40 per ton, with delivered values for June movement at 15.42 per bushel. In the pulse markets, nearby red lentil prices are trading at 33 cents per pound, and yellow peas are holding at 11.25 per bushel. And in the cattle markets, August live cattle slipped 60 cents at 173.90 per hundredweight. For more information on pricing or picked up options, give me a call at 403-394-1711. I'm Matt Musicum at Marketplace Commodities. Accurate, real-time marketing information and pricing options. Canadian Shooting Sports Association. Without the CSSA, our gun rights would have been taken long, long ago. These guys are on the front lines helping to draft smart and intelligent firearms regulations and legislation in Canada and more importantly educating the public about how we keep guns out of the hands of the wrong people. To become a member, it's absolutely worth every penny.